0: Health information from experts supported by research. From University of Utah Health, this is thescoperadio.com. Back pain is one of the most common muscular skeletal complaints of patients, with some studies showing as many as 8 in 10 patients in the United States experiencing back pain at some point in their lifetime. And of those people, 1 in 10 are, will experience consistent chronic back pain, which can have a real impact on their day-to-day quality of life. And for patients suffering from long-term chronic lower back pain, sometimes physical therapy and exercises are just not enough. So what else can they do for relief? To explain some of the other effective treatment options available, we're joined by Dr. Graham Wagner. Dr. Wagner is an assistant professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation and an adjunct professor of neurosurgery at University of Utah Health. Now, Dr. Wagner, to kind of begin our discussion, I really wanted to, you know, draw the line. What's the difference between, say, acute back pain, maybe from an injury or a sprain or something like that versus chronic lower back pain?
1: If you were going to give it a, uh, a defined timeline, three months would be an effective cutoff there, um, you know, and obviously that's not something that is necessarily set in stone for any person. But that's a fair
0: number to put it at. What does living with chronic lower back pain look like? Like what is what kind of impact are these people dealing with for three months or so?
1: Yeah, it depends on the severity of the back pain. You know, people can have that and it's important to say that not all back pain. Is created equal. In fact, there are a number of different pain generators that can cause back pain. It probably for that individual depends on what is the etiology of their back pain. What is the source? What is the the primary pain generator? You know, a a big part of it is uh, the severity. If, you know, on that imperfect zero to 10 scale, if someone is living at a two out of 10, we, they can probably have a conversation with someone and not notice their back pain, and then when they're maybe driving or doing the dishes, or doing something where their brain is quiet, uh, then the back pain is noticeable and it is affecting them. You know, you start getting up to four, or five, six. Um, you know, that more moderate back pain, you know, they, they might be noticing that throughout all aspects of their day. Um, might be starting to cause um, disability, the inability to do certain things. You know, more moderate back pain can interfere with ability to do housework, yard work, um, tolerate a, a full day at work, depending on what they're doing. You know, some types of back pain um, are predominant when people are sitting. So if you have a, a more sedentary job, a desk job, where you're sitting for a significant portion of the a day, that can be pretty debilitating. Um, whereas that same person might get up and go to the gym, you know, get on the elliptical machine or something and not notice any back pain. But from a functional standpoint, that can be very debilitating because they're at work eight, nine hours a day in a position that doesn't work for them, that exacerbates their pain. Now, someone with severe back pain, um, whether acute or chronic, that can um, certainly have um, greater effect on their life, inability to ambulate, inability to uh, sleep comfortably. And so they're waking up multiple times a night and that has a whole host of secondary effects. Um, So it it really just depends on, you know, that individual's pain, the severity of that pain um, and how it's affecting their, their daily function.
0: And for patients that are dealing with this kind of debilitating chronic pain, um, what is typically the first line of treatment that is, you know, effective for them?
1: Depending on what they've tried in the past, generally by the time people get to um, be in pain that's chronic, if it's more than just very low level, um, mild pain, um, they've tried medications. And that's oftentimes helpful, depending on you know, the the degree to which that pain is affecting them throughout their day. You know, sometimes it's an effective strategy to um, take an ibuprofen in the morning. If the back pain is related to arthritis, like typical wear and tear, osteoarthritis, like many people experience in their hands or knees or hips, for instance. But that first half hour of the day is, is quite difficult. Um, I'll often tell people, you know, try taking a warm shower first thing when you wake up in the morning or before you even get out of bed, put a heating pad down. On, uh on your bed and lay there for 10 15 minutes uh, let the muscles warm up um, you know depending on a, a, a person's size um, you know you can even warm up the the joints in the in the lower back and you're just moving a little easier when you first get up in the morning start getting dressed uh, getting ready for work and it can just make the day a little easier for people oftentimes with that type of back pain that osteoarthritis back pain um, you know, that'll come back at the end of the day um, for a lot of people in the afternoon, evening. And then um, medications uh, like Tylenol, ibuprofen, other NSAIDs um, can be helpful at that time too.
0: So it sounds like we could do some behavioral things. It looks like some medications, some, you know, warming up the muscles in the beginning of the day. But what if that doesn't work? What's kind of the next step?
1: Yeah, then we then we get into a a whole host of other medications for pain. And quite truthfully, for most people, there isn't one perfect medication. Sometimes that that comes down to a combination of medications. You know, we have kind of first, second, third line therapies for chronic pain. Usually, we do not like to use uh, opioid pain medications. That's sort of, you know, when everything else has tried and failed because there are, with opioid medications, there are a, a lot of um, negative downstream effects, endocrine, um, mood, etc. And as we all know now, um, these can be um, very dependency forming. And I don't, I don't mean, um, you know, they necessarily cause addiction, but the body makes certain physiologic adjustments to, uh, to accommodate chronic opioid therapy. And that is non-negotiable. Um, you know, even if someone doesn't have an addiction for these medications, there are, um, a list of physiologic changes, um, that can really negatively impact someone um, in both their uh, function and their psychological state um, and their physiologic state. Uh,
0: For a patient who might be, say, hesitant to, you know, uh, turning to these types of medications, uh, what are some of the other options that are available to them?
1: Yeah. So there's a a lot of different things that that people can try. Um, One of the more common ones being chiropractic care. Uh, Some people experience improvement with low back pain, with establishing a relationship with a chiropractor that that knows them. I think that a reasonable um, way to determine if it's successful for you is if you can intermittently get care from a chiropractor and that offers you a number of weeks of relief at a time or intermittent care when you have flares and back pain that's probably successful and if you're if you're happy with that and then and you consider that successful excellent other things that are are quite commonly done acupuncture if you can find a trained acupuncturist um, that you work well with. And very similarly, if you're able to get um, intermediate or longer term pain relief, then that is a strategy that might work for you in the long term in managing your care. Another option that uh, actually has some of the strongest data behind it is behavioral therapies. You know, psychological interventions. Some examples might be cognitive behavioral therapy um, or mindfulness meditation. So, the the place in the brain, the deeper brain, and I won't get too far in the weeds with this, but um, the the place where pain is processed, there are other things being processed: fear, anxiety, um, and oftentimes those start to overlap with. Chronic pain, um, and so one thing that we can do is sort of recruit the executive functioning part of our brain, the forebrain, uh, and bring that in to kind of tamp down some of these other some of these other responses that are occurring in the brain. Um, those are often quite helpful in adding to the the list of our armamentarium in um, in treating chronic back pain.
0: So it sounds like when it comes to pain care, it really is individualized. And we've gone through a whole bunch of options that are, say, you know, non-invasive. And we have another piece on the scope, and we'll throw a link in the description, of non-surgical options like stimulation and injections, et cetera, to help people with their pain if some of these other modalities aren't working. But at what point, as someone who works with patients who are experiencing, say, this chronic lower back pain, when do you turn to surgery?
1: Not being a surgeon, I can give you a, um, a sense of when I refer a patient to surgery. As I had mentioned before, there are a number of different potential pain generators and a number of different pathologies that can all cause back pain. Some things are much better treated with surgery than others. For instance, if you have a disc herniation, let's just throw it out there. You know, if that person doesn't respond to time, physical therapy, medication management, perhaps some injections, things like epidural injections, and they don't improve, maybe weakness worsens, that person might be an excellent candidate for um, a surgery to uh, move a portion of that disc off of the nerve that it's impinging. You know, that, that person might be a great surgical candidate. Another person might be someone that has uh, degenerative changes in the spine that have happened over many years, narrowing the central canal where the nerve roots um, in the lower lumbar or or the lumbar region um, are sort of pinched together as they go through the the spinal canal, causing uh, oftentimes posterior leg symptoms, worsened when up and walking for maybe a few minutes, improve when people sit down. That's, you know, neurogenic claudication, that's called. And it's fairly common in patients like that, um, maybe a, a great candidate for surgery. But it very much depends on the individual and what is causing, causing the pain. But for someone that is young, that is just experiencing back pain, I'd have to say, you know, I've seen, you know, some hesitancy, in treating, treating back pain with surgery. And most of the time we want to optimize non-operative options for that and, and sort of build a patient's toolbox rather than, than jumping to surgery. Um, cause for back pain, surgery is a little less reliable. Um, and again, you'd have to to talk to a surgeon about any individual's case. Um, for sure. Sure. Yeah. But, uh, you know, back, back pain, um, is is not as as well treated typically um, is is leg like symptoms and nerve uh, compression.
0: I guess as a you know as a as a physician as a healthcare provider as a healthcare communicator, we all wish that there was kind of this straight answer for complex problems like chronic pain. And you know, for patients who are listening to this, either they or a loved one are reading along or listening along, and kind of. You know, hearing all these options, it might be a little overwhelming. What is it that you tell a patient who is first, you know, dealing with chronic pain? You know, what is the kind of hopeful message that they can get with, you know, as they start trying these different modalities?
1: I tell them that hopefully we'll be able to identify a discrete pain generator that has a fairly reliable and evidence-based treatment that we can do for it. As a physician that treats primarily back pain, you know, I'm looking for what is the pain generator, you know, back pain is a symptom, it's not a diagnosis. And so the more things that we're able to treat, the more treatments we have for discrete pain generators, the better off we are. But for a lot of people, You know, when when pain becomes chronic, even treating discrete pain generators is insufficient. You know, it might give temporary relief, but they're still having chronic pain, which is why, and this is not an area that I work in, um, but we have a phenomenal here at the University of Utah, a phenomenal uh, chronic pain management center that's able to take more of a holistic look. At treating a person's pain, they have embedded physical therapy, they have embedded psychology, um, they do more medication management than I'm really able to do, on top of treating discrete pain generators with interventional therapies, too. and so, if we can't find something reasonably quickly that is going to going to help keep people out of pain for, an, you know, an intermediate or, or longer term, even though uh, you know the the pain might come back, oftentimes we can find for people um, something that works for, let's say, six months, a year, two years. Um, you know, in those patients, we can we can treat with intermittent interventional therapy, and it usually works out quite good. Um, But, you know, finding a good, comprehensive pain management program that's really looking at the patient holistically, that's willing to work with the patient to try all of these things, to find what works for that individual. Um, For a lot of people, that's critical.
0: Have a question about a medical procedure? Want to learn more about a health condition? With over 2,000 interviews with our physicians and specialists, there's a pretty good chance you'll find what you want to know. Check it out at thescoperadio.com.